the fire underneath the stars It's a summer night in a country town Sitting right beside my best girl around Oh, I got feelings for you Thought I was happy in a single life Just me, my Chevy and a hunting knife But there you were that one day And everything changes when you feel this way Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd Middle Initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right. It is me, and we have been listening to a song by Bill Mulroney called, well, we'll let this next gentleman introduce the song, but the next gentleman we're going to be speaking with is doing the percussion on that song. He's also doing the clear night, cool night background vocals, and he might even have said that little thing, the tag at the end, I'm not sure, but on the phone with me right now is Mr. Ron Goad. How are you, sir? I've got feelings for you, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> That's the name of the song in the album. I love that album, that song. It's very, uh, very uh, uh, significant to me. Um, Bill Mulroney um, and I had, uh, I had recorded with him in 2008, and uh, we played at Blues Alley. We had a regular gig at Flanagan's Harp and Fiddle in Bethesda. And we were playing a lot at his uh, American Legion in uh, Rockville. And then, um, he, and he's an attorney, but he, he became dormant for a long time. And uh, I ran into him at JV's in Falls Church. And uh, he told me um, he hadn't played in a while and he really uh, wasn't motivated. So I motivated him. And said, let's go back into the studio. 
This is one song he had written that he had not recorded in 2008. He wanted to record the song he used to play when he was a little boy, and he accompanied his dad, who played trumpet. I Remember You is the name of it. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, let's go into the studio and record these songs. And there were some other songs he had recorded that he wanted to upgrade. And um, so we went to Blake Althan's studio, humanfactor.net, in Arlington, and um, then uh, he did the, the the wildest thing. He let me pretty much have a run of the of the place. Um, and um, so uh, I was able to add harmony parts and didn't worry about how long it took. Uh, but it was, uh, and as far as percussion goes, I enjoyed that. And I, uh, and um, that guitar solo, did you, you remember that, that nice guitar solo in that song? Yes. Is that you? beautiful that's no that's that's uh me making decisions because uh uh jack bond played oh, yes. um, mm -hmm. amazing guitar on it and um he recorded the, the solo several times and um i went into the studio the next day and they were thinking about pitching it and i said i love this solo so much john troop i want you to memorize it note for note and play it up an octave and do a harmony part in between on guitar well, he was already playing keyboards and some harmonies with me on the song, but John Troop was so quick that he uh, he uh, completely duplicated uh, what Jack Bond was doing, which is why it sounds so full and rich, but that's actually two different people playing uh, the guitar. I just love what Jack Bond did on that. So there were decisions like that, and when um, Bill Mulroney said, I need a trumpet player, I got Justine Miller, who's from the um, Chop Teeth, and also Gina DeSimone and the Moaners. So it was so much fun to uh, do that, and they came up with that. But to me, uh, uh, harmony is so much fun. Um, I started when I was a little boy, and I would sing along with my mother. And uh, she would say, no, son, those are my notes. You find your own notes. <laughs> That's a nice so I'm very happy because Bill Mulroney won awards for this album. and. Um, it, it, it just uh, it lifted everybody's spirits to uh, do uh, I've Got Feelings for You. And he's getting airplay around the world. So that's one of the many dozens of CDs I'm on. And there's a story behind each one. But that was very special to me. Well, and you mentioned that he allowed you to go crazy. Well, sort of, sort of crazy. <laughs> yes, yes. You are already crazy as I am. <laughs> right, on on one song, start. which we cannot actually play the song because we don't have the rights to it. But I'm going to play mm -hmm. the, the drum intro really quickly. And when I cut it off, it's going to be cut off, <laughs> unfortunately, really quickly before we get into the song so people don't recognize the song. Okay. But they this, said, go wild like a monkey for eight beats is what they told me. All right. Here it is. There you go, Ron Goad going wild like a monkey on, <laughs> on drums. And then he comes in with uh, one of his favorite songs. Uh, Bob Dylan wrote "She Belongs to Me." Yep. And um, that was uh, that was so he's he does such a good job on uh, things like like a Rolling Stone, and uh, so uh, you know it's it's uh, just a joy to uh, to be part of a, a show like that. And I love backing you up. You know, I love your songs. And uh, your songs always put me in a good mood, and uh, it, it's just like cruise control. So uh, I just think it's uh, uh, a shame because of this pandemic. I haven't been able to uh, 
to hear um, and, and accompany Todd Walker like we used to at Brewer's Alley, for example. Well, I used to tell people that when I had the opportunity to perform where Ron Goad was at, <laughs> at the venue and had his, his African drum and his maybe his hi-hat and some shakers or whatever, <laughs> that when he would accompany me, my songs felt like songs. <laughs> well, remember, one of my favorite bands is with Chris Anderson, the Harried Americans. Mm-hmm. And we've had shows for years and years. And uh, she's in Virginia Beach now. We consider the band still together, but we haven't played uh, this year, I don't think. Maybe March, February. But um, she started putting together these Harriet Americans road shows each month. And we had a special guest and a comedian and a poet. And you were her first choice uh, for a featured performer. Do you remember that? I, I think well, it might I, have been. I remember the Epicure. This, it was at the Epicure, and the mm-hmm. um, I remember we had trouble with the sound system because <laughs> half of the the half of the XLR inputs didn't work. Right. And there was someone in the audience who had done sound in one of your other shows. You said, look, you're hired. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, uh, this uh, one of my I have many mottos and part of my credo. And one of them is when I'm on my way to any show, I forgive people in advance, <laughs> except for myself. Uh, you know, so I, I expect some sensitive musician to say something. Uh, maybe uh, unintentionally or intentionally to hurt my feelings. And so I have to brace myself. And, and you know, you expect uh, uh, things will happen. My friend in Nashville, Craig Carruthers, says there's nothing like anticipation to set you up for disappointment. Ah, it's a good quote. Another quote he has that's very important is, I thought you took care of that. <laughs> <laughs> right there so with I'm Hans- very grateful that uh, I became part of the Frederick scene. And uh, got to know Rod DC at the West Side Cafe and got to know you and Tommy Wright. And I, it, you know, I tell people all the time, and I'm not kidding. I said, if you put Old Town Alexandria and Georgetown together and Tacoma Park and all your favorite places, that comes close to equaling Frederick. The cultural scene there is the best. We have been very fortunate that people have agreed to perform here, not only just local and regional, but even national and international people. At the end of the show, um, we're going to be playing a song by Ian Campbell Smith, or as he's affectionately referred mm-hmm. to in Australia as Fred Smith. Yes. But he was living, I think, in the D.C. area at the time where he performed at Brewer's Alley, and you introduced him basically to Rod and and the rest of us. And so that's just one of many international um, and we had, yes, I love to play with uh, him and um, uh, also Brazilian uh, Rick mm-hmm. Udler, yep. and he's come up to Brewer's Alley too. He's an amazing bossa nova guitarist, and uh, so you know through music uh, we meet uh, such uh, interesting people, don't we? We do, and the, one of the reasons I wanted to play that intro on the the you know go crazy like a monkey drum intro was because so many people in the greater Frederick, Maryland area, where I'm uh, producing the show from, where I'm speaking from, and you're in Virginia at the moment, because of COVID, we can't get together really in person anymore, mm-hmm. is the most people here have seen and heard you playing your African drum. Yeah, and the Brazilian drum, too, the djembe. Yeah. Yeah. And the Brazilian one is a timbal. It's a conical drum. Not many people play that. So I can claim to be the best timbal player around because mm-hmm. nobody else 
has one. <laughs> but but most people here never realized that you play. You also play a full kit. I think Harry Pritchett is a good example when um, True. He, he recorded his CD that he, he won the award for, for Nightbird, and mm-hmm. you played percussion on one of the songs, and you... Right. And you made something, some mention about, you know, I and he said, I didn't realize you played drums. <laughs> That's funny because uh, I teamed up with the late, great Robbie Magruder. It was just a, a, he was a superior drummer. And he, he played the drum set on the first verse of Nightbird. And then Marco Delmar did the strangest thing. You know how most people will build up the percussion, maybe mm-hmm. start with a little bongos or something and then add a drum set. Well, what he did for Nightbird was have Robbie play the first verse on the drum set and then suddenly the bottom drops out and I start playing hand drums. <laughs> uh, and it, it really draws your ear toward what Harry's singing. And yeah, he won awards. Harry uh, Pritchett is is amazing. And he took that song Nightbird to these toolbox sessions and critiques with Songwriters Association of Washington, kept bringing Nightbird back. And then there's Nightbird again. Oh my golly, is he ever gonna finish Nightbird? But uh, people would give him uh, suggestions, and then he'd have to decide which suggestions to take. But he built that song into uh, an award winner, Nightbird. I'm on several. In fact, I'm on uh, uh, Harry Pritchett's next CD, too, whenever that comes out. I've done some recording with him, and it hasn't been released yet. Well, I'm looking at your website, and for those folks listening who don't know what your website address is, it's rongoadmusic.com. And well, really, uh, if you could send people to facebook.com slash music, that would be better. Oh, okay. Because I've, I've abandoned rongoadmusic.com, but I can't seem to kill it. But uh, So I'm, uh, I put all my um, goodies on um, like one CD at a time. I'm adding to my Facebook page, so it's facebook.com slash and, you know, I'm a retired English teacher, so I have to say it's not really a slash. It's a virgule, <laughs> Ron Goad music. So, yeah, uh, but I appreciate it very much. Uh, I was starting that website with Chris Anderson, and um, I just couldn't get it uh, off the ground. She came down with uh, Lyme disease at the time, and, and everything just kind of stopped at that point. Well, one of the things on that site, it lists the people you have recorded with. Yes. Um, among among them, Chris Anderson and Bill Mulroney and the Second Wind Bandits, the um, Ian Campbell-Smith, who we're going to hear later at the end of the show, Harry Pritchett, Gene Bayou, Les Hatley, Laura Barron, Naked wow. Blue, Pat Wichter, yeah. who, who many people <laughs> know uh, nationally, um, mm-hmm. the late, great Richard Ricardo White, and oh my. lots lots and lots and lots of people. I mean, and that's, that's just an amazing, a partial list, I'm sure. That's an amazing CD with uh, the Universe Room with Ricardo Richard White. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that. Uh, and uh, I'm still making an effort to get his music uh, online because nobody knew his password when he died ah. for his website. So that that's a problem, folks. Make sure people know, yeah. know your uh, password, too. Well, um, you know, you mentioned that you're, you're a former... Um, English professor slash teacher educator, however you want to, uh, <laughs> to to title it. But tell me, how did you get involved in music from the very very beginning? Was it a family oh my thing God. or how? Well, I hope it's not hope it's not boring. But uh, in uh, Front Royal, Virginia, um, uh, let's see. There's there's a picture of me when people say, "What's the first concert you attended?" 
and you often see that on Facebook and people will put something like, well, Kiss or ACDC or Metallica or something. And, and I can say Bing Crosby, but I was in the womb. There's a Bing Crosby <laughs> Stadium in Front Royal. And there's a picture in the Warren Sentinel of my mother holding up my sister and I'm in the womb just a few months before I was born. But when I was a little boy, I uh, apparently went to some Patsy Cline concerts. I can't, you'd have to hypnotize me to get me to recall that. But my mother knew Patsy Cline and she liked to sing and i took piano lessons uh i i did piano uh recitals when eisenhower was president and now just in the last since the pandemic started uh i've been uh learning my piano chords major minor seven suspended so i'm working on on piano trying to be an old dog uh, uh with new tricks but i got bored with my piano teacher in 1961 i'm afraid and uh I passed an audition to be in the sixth grade band. And uh, that meant because I could tell major from minor and so on, same from different, uh, then I could pick any instrument that was lined up on the stage. And uh, every brass and reed instrument you could imagine was lined up on the stage. And I, on the left end was a drum. And that's as far as my eyes got. I fell in <laughs> love with the drum. And so I started, I thought all these years later, why didn't I find a, a different piano teacher? <laughs> no, I became a drummer. Yep. And I still enjoy it because it puts me in the company of people like you. And uh, a lot of people will have me tap along. And I think, good grief, I'm the most overrated musician in the D.C. area. But uh, all I'm trying to do is tap along. And my number one mission is not to screw up your song. And if I get past that and transcend it, then I can, number two is try to enhance the song, but don't distract, you know? So that's what I was kind of embarrassing for me when Bill Mulroney asked me to start that Bob Dylan song with a couple measures of uh, wild flailing. Uh, and drum solos at the end of the song, I think you may as well just have sneakers in a dryer. Just put a dryer <laughs> on stage with sneakers, you know? And I, I get embarrassed, but you know, about once a night at a big show, I'll do a little drum solo, but uh, it's true that, you know, I play washboard with jug bands and Dixieland bands and I'm on various CDs and there are lots of YouTube videos that include me. And uh, if you play the washboard, then your ego is dissolved because you are like a clown uh, making sounds like tap dancing. So it's good mental therapy to play the washboard and, and just put a smile on people's faces with the uh, silly music. Uh, but those people in that community don't know I play the drum set and they don't know I play hand drums. They just know I play washboard. So they call me scratchy in the Dixieland and jug band world. I am scratchy. <laughs> well, don't you have, besides the, um, the washboard that I've seen you kind of put over your shoulders. I remember you coming to Brewers one time with a whole, uh -huh one of those one-man band type of uh, things. Yes. Yes. And uh, well, some videos uh, like Shoot Him in the Pants and uh, I Got a Gal in Baltimore on YouTube uh, with a band. I'm uh, using Jim Bunches, the Gut Bucketeers washboard. But I also have one here that I call the Large and Zany washboard with antique phone bells, wood blocks, Zildjian cymbal, train whistle, bicycle horn, bicycle bell, and I don't know what else. Uh, things I add, things fall off, but... Uh, but it is it is a bit uh, clownish and uh, you know uh, the 
all new genetically altered jug band has a CD called It's Alive. And we figure we've been together about 20 years now with the same four people. Bags Howard on the horn, they got Bucketeer Jim Bunch on the washtub bass, and Special Ed Light on banjo, guitar, kazoos and things. And uh, we're a really solid quartet, so I'm very proud of that. Dr. Demento has been playing our songs this summer, like Corona Copolips Blues. Um, let's see. Um, uh, Some Little Bug is Gonna Get You Someday, uh, a parody of the Walt Disney song called uh, Laughing in the Fuhrer's Face. We call it Coughing in the Donald's Face. So Dr. Demento actually has done some mastering and mixing for us uh, and our ridiculous songs that we've recorded on people's decks this summer, some so, of those things. So how did you go from, in <laughs> 1961, seeing that drum? Yeah. And progressing, and I would assume that during that that time period, those initial four years or so, it was it was either a drum set or maybe a snare, um, or maybe yes, marching band. Snare. Marching uh, band, exactly. John Philip Susan. Okay. So how did in you... my small town? Go ahead. No, no, please finish. <laughs> well, it was a small town, so we had uh, Harry Parker was our band director and the son of the Harry Parker Senior, who was a band director at Warren County High School. So we had a long tradition and. Uh, uh, and he he was our uh, he taught us marching band, uh, orchestra, symphonic music, and I had another teacher, Madeline McNeil, who was my vocal teacher. I used to go to her house and like the early throughout the '60s, she was my teacher, and um, she taught me everything from madrigal singers to waltzing in uh, operettas. Uh, just I loved her voice. But she and Harry Parker had to share an office. Um, she was amazing. She taught us about the structure of classical music. And she brought in new albums by people like Simon and Garfunkel back when they were new. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, uh, in fact, the first time she ever did a gig was at Middletown, Virginia, at the Wayside Inn. And uh, I was Garfunkel and she was Simon. And then in 1968, I knew she was so unhappy sharing an office. She was like a bohemian hippie chick ahead of her time. And uh, I, I suggested in so many words that she'd give up her day job and follow her dream. Only I didn't realize she actually did that. I went away to college. And then many years later, just a few years ago, I put her on stage at the Athenaeum in Old Town Alexandria. I did a series of close to 100 concerts there. And uh, she was interviewed for the Alexandria Gazette. And I read the interview and she said it was a little Ronnie Goad who convinced me to follow my dream. So I've been telling musicians what to do for over 50 years. Wow. And, um, because she influenced me so much, and Harry Parker did too. And then the Beatles came out, and I had a friend named Skip Haga in Front Royal. He's a very accomplished piano player based in the Charlottesville area now. And I started going over to his house, and we would try early Beatles songs when they were brand new. And I would just... Uh, bang on my drum or cardboard box or whatever. And he could play any instrument. He could play trumpet, piano, uh, guitar, bass. He was very good at all those things. And then we found a friend named Ralph who was in the Boy Scouts with us. And Ralph Fortune is his name. He's still a very respected guitarist, but we were the ones who got together with him and said, you know, if you want to be cool, Ralph, and maybe get a girlfriend, then you should play an instrument in our band. And then we looked at each other and we decided guitar. 
So we chose guitar for Ralph, and he, within a couple of years, people were calling him Eric and God in the Shenandoah Valley. Wow. But uh, so that was how we kind of segued into rock and roll. Skip had a lot of money. His parents were wealthy, and he had a pinball machine. He had a pool table. We could practice. He had all the amps and instruments, and his parents wanted him to have a job, so they let him open a record store in Front Royal. And then he started getting the billboard charts and the cash box charts, and the records would come in every week. He would put them on his little turntable, figure them out, write down the words and the chords, and teach them to our band that weekend to play at the youth center. So uh, whether we wanted to or not, we were constantly growing and improving. As, for instance, the Beatles would come out with a new song, and then another new song that wasn't anything like what they did a few months ago. And maybe we didn't you – know, there are two types of songs. Some make uh, – some grow on you, and the other make a good first impression. And then some of those you don't like so much anymore, but some you do. So we uh, found that the Beatles songs kind of grew on us. And we thought, oh, that's hard. That sounds like it'll be a hard song to learn. So, um, but thanks to Skip, uh, we were able to uh, improve and uh, become uh, uh, a really popular band up and down Route 11 before Interstate 81 was built. Can you believe it? Well, you know, it's uh, you're of my generation, and I sometimes forget that when I was a kid, like, and I grew up in New England on Cape Cod, to get yeah. to get to Boston, there was no highway. You took the back roads all the way to Boston. No. And the same thing with what you're saying, eighty one wasn't there, so you took Route Eleven from Hagerstown all the way down. So, it was a major expedition for my redneck friends and me to uh, get to uh, D.C. or Baltimore to see, you know, Jimi Hendrix or Cream or Blind Faith. Uh, that, that was uh, quite a hike for us. Uh, it's only an hour away from where I live here now in Centerville, Virginia. But like I say, 66 was under construction then. And the people in my hometown wanted to stop the highway. They they, they didn't want hoodlums coming <laughs> from the city out to the Shenandoah Valley, you know. And little did they know there was already one there. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> now, at that time period when you had this band you playing at the youth center were you singing as well or just being the drummer yes i was a singing drummer and um i'm left-handed but uh when i got a drum set from uh, uh, a friend in front royal um i i didn't really know how to set it up so i there was a beatles album and i looked at that and saw how ringo was set up and i set up my drums that way uh you know, like a right-handed person with the hi-hat on the left. And um, so that's how I got started. And then one time at a wedding reception a few years ago, I switched the drums around and I played them that way and nobody in the band noticed. And I thought, well, they're not very observant. And then I thought, oh, I guess I didn't screw up. <laughs> now, did you find it easy to switch over? And did you? No, it, it, it's like, you know, rubbing your belly and patting your head at mm -hmm. the same time and uh, it, it, walking and chewing gum. It just takes a, a little uh, a little practice, but it's good exercise. I also hold the stick sometimes in a traditional grip, mm -hmm. which, which means left hand, palm up, yep. like for marching drum. That's where that came from because of the angle of the drum. And, and sometimes I'll totally switch those around to give my wrists a break. Uh, it, it, and it helps. It's a good mental exercise. I also, 
you know, the way a drummer sets up his symbols is like a fingerprint because it's very idiosyncratic and individual. So um, when I set up my drums, uh, they're never necessarily the same way twice. I put the symbols in different places, different heights, different arrangements and groups of them if necessary. And uh, to, to keep myself alert. <laughs> so I don't, you know, otherwise I would better cut myself on the edge of a symbol. But um, I, I just enjoy uh, still trying to uh, pick up, uh, you know, new beats and ideas. And I'm, I'm in awe of so many of the drummers around here who just uh, have uh, much more talent than I do. But uh, I've been at it so long and I'm available. Well, you mentioned to me one time that the way you approach your drum part with someone where you haven't necessarily heard their music before is you, you'll, cause you never come in at the top of the song. You always come in four beats, eight beats, the, or at least when you just play like the, I did the, on that song you yep, played, yep. notice the drum comes tap, tap. Yep. But you, you said that in your head, you'll say, Oh, this sounds like what Led yes. Zeppelin, you know, you, you'll, you'll categorize it by the Beatles did this on this song or Led Zeppelin did it. Is, is that that's how why you... it helps to, yeah, that's why it helps to have such a uh, library of um, uh, other songs, older songs on my uh, uh, mental hard drive. Uh, because, for instance, uh, let's say if I'm preparing for a show and um, I, maybe I listen to some songs online and I'll take some notes. Now, maybe I'll write down how many beats per minute on the metronome and that can help. But say, for instance, Levon Helm changed drumming with up on Cripple Creek How so? and, uh, and the night that they drove old Dixie down. He, in fact, there, there are videos of Levon Helm expi- explaining how he came up with this up on Cripple Creek. It's a kind of a fat back thing, but nobody else did it before Levon Helm and thousands of songs since then use the, uh, so what I'll write down on my notes is Cripple Creek, and that means I want to do the, that beat for that song that I'm playing with a new person, a new musician. But uh, he explained how he came up with this beat where there's a syncopation and, and sort of a ghost note uh, where he pulls his hand out of the way so he doesn't hurt himself, and that ended up with a, a, a new beat. Isn't that odd? It, it is, but I'm amazed that you can recall all those things at the drop of a hat. Well. I it just sort of like, I, for instance, with Ian Campbell Smith, the Australian guy, there were a lot of songs and, and very specific instructions that were more like a Broadway musical or show tune than rock and roll. But he knew exactly what he wanted and when to drop out with this, when to add this. So I had to write these notes. And, you know, I might write down something like Mustang for Mustang Sally or Proud for Proud Mary if there's a certain beat and tempo. And I get that in my head. And also, I try to help musicians, uh, let's say guitarists, singer-songwriters, when they're setting a tempo for a song, I tell them, don't think about the beginning of the song. Think about the hook. Think about a part in the middle of the song. And uh, because your adrenaline will will get you to start out the song too too slow, usually too fast, really. But um, I I, I say, get that song in your head. And and uh, then start with the beginning, of course, but get the 
it's sort of like dropping your mental needle in the middle of the record to to determine the tempo. And that's another thing. I think so many songwriters start songs with the same beat, same rhythm, same tempo. And I try to, I do workshops with Tommy Wright and we try to get people to explore different rhythms and tempos. So maybe you've got a song that would sound better faster or with a swing beat or as a waltz, you know, but play with it and, and see what you can do. And uh, once again, see if it uh, makes a good impression upon you. So would you consider yourself a producer of sorts? Yes. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I do, because very often I'll uh, suggest to people, um, whether we're in the studio or, or working on a project, like you need a mandolin player, you need a harmonizer, you need a vocal lesson. Here's Marianne Redmond's phone number. <laughs> I mean, I've done that before. I, there was one lady who was, just had a voice that, you know, you don't want the entrepreneur or your your boss to say, Ron, what were you thinking when you put that woman on stage? Mm -hmm. So she asked me if she could play at the show at Bangkok Blues. And I said, here's the phone number for Siobhan uh, Quinn. She's a great vocal teacher. Get back to me. I had already arranged with Siobhan to help this woman. And a few minutes later, the phone rang and I saw her husband's name on the caller ID. And I thought, oh boy, I'll bet he's mad at me because I didn't schedule her. I told her to, to get some vocal lessons and I picked up the phone and he said, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he was glad. And then, uh, it really did make a difference, but sometimes, uh, people just need, you know, it, something may be obvious to you, but if you don't say it, they're not going to hear it. So, um, uh, it, I try to imagine when I hear a song, what would make it sound better? Or is, you know, so many people like you, you put on a one man show and you, there's a full sound, what I call an earful. But some people like, like me, I sound, I don't sound that good all by myself because I'm not a very good guitarist. But, um, uh, but I, I do often think in terms of, uh, wow, what would really make this, uh, you know, so I get songwriters to teach friends how to accompany them on on their songs. And I say, when you hire somebody or you jam with somebody, don't say the fateful words, I want to form a band, because then you <laughs> may never get a divorce. But uh, just say, let's jam and see how it goes, and then see if they pick up some of your songs. Another rule is that when you get people to accompany you, they're going to have their own agenda. You're not going to just get somebody to play drums. You're going to get somebody who plays drums and has opinions and wants to do some singing, maybe harmony or something, you know? So, so uh, if, no matter who that backup musician is, you've got to consider that backup musicians uh, role in the band and adding new things to the band, a new sound. And what is going to, you know, is it going to be a good idea to let, let the show include some of that person's songs too? Yes. If you can do it and, uh, uh, use you know it may not be what you planned at the beginning but uh it may make the music much more enjoyable uh to uh see where that new accompanist can take you well you mentioned guitar and until you had played the guitar at brewer's alley one time we're talking good 10 12 years ago i'm sure maybe, maybe even farther back than that and it was pretty much spur of the moment and it was it was a night of 
gosh, I remember. Was it like Rod Deasy's birthday or something? No, I don't. No. I think it was before that one. But anyways, you got up and I did not realize because I just assumed you were a drummer slash percussionist. I didn't realize you did other things. And you got up and you were very accomplished on the guitar. I think I may have played uh, something like Born in Chicago by the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. It was blues number, yep. Because it was uh, so simple to play. But yeah, um, I um, have quite a few guitars around the house here, I must admit. And um, 12 strings, uh, high-pitched tuned guitar, Nashville tuning, which is like the other six strings of a Mm -hmm. 12-string. So the the skinny notes are at the uh, top. Not where you think some of them are an octave higher. I also have a uh, nylon string guitars I like. So during the pandemic, I've been focusing on guitar quite a bit. In fact, um, I want you to know uh, and anybody else that uh, I'm a board member of the Reston Herndon Folk Club, and it's restonherndonfolkclub.com. And if you go to the calendar and go to last night's show, for uh, which was uh, January 12th, you can hear me play guitar and sing an original song that I wrote years ago. From I've written a handful of songs, and this is one I wrote for my sister, and I call it my sister. And uh, I wrote it for a Bob Frankie's class. He's an amazing mentor. Uh, so I've I've also co-written with Emily, Emily Dickinson, William Ernest Henley, uh, Christopher Marlowe, who was one of Shakespeare's contemporaries. So uh, uh, some of the poems I used to enjoy teaching. To my high school kids, I, I decided to set them to music too. And you know, it's um, really easy to work with a dead co-writer. <laughs> uh, and uh, I also have co-written with uh, a bunch of people here. And you know, I mentioned that I'm, uh, I'm on a bunch of CDs, singing and playing drums. Uh, but uh, there are other CDs. There are over a dozen CDs where I'm acknowledged, and and that usually means I co-wrote but I did not ask for co-writing credit. Okay. So if somebody writes, thanks, Ron, chances are I went to their house, sat in their kitchen and said, you know, this verse number three should be verse one. And I love it when you do ooby dooby dooby dooby, do it twice in a row. That's going to be really cool. So, you know, I, uh, I do some revising uh, with people and uh, that is just like an extension of my job as a creative writing teacher and if i help my students my teenagers i didn't say give me co-writing credit on this if they took my suggestions so how did you or yes how did you decide that education and not music was going to be your your full-time job or work well i I fell in love with a pick of the litter at madison college in 1969 a girl named marianne from new jersey and she graduated and she was going to be a practical person, a uh, math teacher, and she got a job in uh, Fairfax County. And uh, I decided to uh, leave Madison College, now JMU, and follow her down here to the Beltway area before the Beltway was finished. And uh, uh, and she convinced me not to be a speech and drama major anymore, a starving actor. But uh, she said, you know, why don't you become a teacher like me? And we won't sell out to the man. We won't teach during the summer. We go hiking, camping, and cruising. So I bought the whole package. (laughs) And uh, I thought, this sounds good to me. And, you know, I love words and stories. And I was also my school's top uh, math student in high school, but I never pursued math. I 
and I'm a mathematical idiot now, so I hire people to do my taxes, uh, like Jim Clark from the Harley String Band and Laurelyn Coles, who is an amazing uh, person who handles money for Saul, Whamma, IMT folk, and uh, she's my personal secretary. So that keeps me out of uh, uh, debtor's prison there and allows me to uh, do music. But um, so I decided uh, really like teaching and not teaching summer school. And then I got to develop curriculum in Fairfax County for creative writing courses, a special class called Consumer English for kids who were barely functionally literate. I'm very proud of that. And uh, I was the first gifted and talented high school English teacher uh, here in Virginia um, because um, I went to the superintendent and said, you know, they don't have GT English for gifted and talented in high school. It stops at middle school. And uh, I'd like I'd like a class, uh, not AP, not advanced placement, but for the artsy fartsy kids who are into wordplay and uh you know, sarcasm and parodies and so on. And the superintendent told me something I'll never forget. He said, Mr. Goad, if you want to teach the bluebirds and pointy heads, tell them to come in on on Saturdays. And uh, so I got my way to teach the uh, artsy fartsy kids uh, GT English. And I got a certificate uh, allowing me to do that before it was uh, popular but uh so let's say todd if you were in my uh gt english class we might read a story and instead of taking a mundane test on it i might have you write a parody of it and we'll present that to the class uh and it was so much fun because these kids were, were a challenge and that meant i could not play music on weeknights when i was teaching i did wedding receptions starting in the 80s with a band night music. I'm still the new guy. I joined in 84 with <laughs> five educators. I'm still in channel five, but uh, I, I love teaching and I knew that I had to get a good night's sleep. So I only did tuxedo gigs, wedding receptions on weekends back then. And then we started having writers conferences at my school. And uh, around the year uh, 2000, uh, Dan Grove, I was just talking to him from the Folk Club, award-winning songwriter, asked me to judge a song contest for Saw. Well, I didn't know we had song contests. I didn't even know we had songwriters. So uh, that's how I became introduced to Saw, and uh, I started organizing these shows. And I thought, well, if I'm going to sit in the audience, that's one thing. But, you know, I could get a hand drum and maybe tap along. So I made a career out of that. But we had writers' conferences at Centerville High School, and I had people come like Steve Key, Naked Blue, Sue Trainer, Roger Henderson, who was in the original cast of Hair, and he had uh, Eva Cassidy recorded one of his songs. So uh, music became part of what I was doing in school. I had Boom Boom Melcher, who was Elvis's last drummer. And one day he came in with a little handheld device and said, let's write a song, kids. And they wrote a song and he recorded it. And back then, only about five or 10 of my students had a computer at home, but they were able to go home and listen to the song on the computer. So that was the advent of the computer age. And as time went on, I just decided to move more into, uh, after 30 years of teaching, uh, to focus on uh, nonprofits in the uh, music community here. So I, I tend to spend money at gigs rather than make it. <laughs> now, do you miss the education side of your life? Well, uh, 
I enjoyed it while I did it, but I never went back to substitute teach. When I go to Centerville High School now, I don't turn left to the English department. I could turn right to Bill Burke's guitar class, and I go there with uh, guitarists I bring in from around the world. But no, I loved it, but that was a huge chapter in my life. I had about 4,500 students, and they're between the ages of 35 and 65 right now. I'm 70. So, uh, uh, you know, I took a year off in the middle of my career and became an award-winning realtor with Shannon and Lux. Did you know that? You know, I think you mentioned that to me one time, but I had forgotten. Well, I decided to just take a year off, and my first wife, Marianne, allowed me to do that. It was not a sabbatical, not for educational purposes, but I was guaranteed a position a year later. And I, I just fell in love with the idea of learning about easements and let's say the trees, uh, an apple from your neighbor's tree falls into your yard, it's your apple. Uh, root grows from your neighbor's tree into your yard, it's your problem. Uh, how far up do we go? Through the sky. Uh, so I became fascinated by real estate. And uh, you're a realtor, aren't you? I am. And you know what separates us? Uh, well, I'm not active anymore. Uh, from regular agents is that you have passed an ethics course. Yes, have to do it every two years. A lot of people years. don't yep. know that. Yep. That entitles you to use trademark realtor two syllables, capital R. Yep. Uh, so I put people in my car that year, and um, invariably they tended to buy a house. Um, I would somehow uh, get them to sign Z papers, <laughs> and uh, I did a lot of it using my own crazy humor. But I would also figure this, you know, do you ever think this when you have a couple, let's say if you, I don't know if you still do this, uh, but we had multiple listing service computers. It was the first time I could type in, you want a white picket fence, a walkout basement, blah, blah, blah. You will get exactly what you want and start looking at houses. I figured if there was a couple in my car, one of them did not want to be there. They probably had an argument and one of them lost and got dragged along to see me that day <laughs> and look at houses. So I would zero in on that one and uh, to uh, try to get to know the person who seemed to be the party of lesser interest and uh, make them feel comfortable. And, and then before you know it, and also I would tell them the truth and they seemed stunned when I would say, they would ask a question. I'd say, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll look it up and get back to you tomorrow. Shock. <laughs> but when that year was over, I went back to my teaching and I thought, well, in 2003, I'll activate my real estate license again. But by 2003, I was starting to uh, play with a lot more bands, not just night music. And I just enjoyed that too much. Uh, and, and, you know, shortly after that, just a few years later, I ended up in Frederick, and that that was uh, a big deal because one thing that made our shows a success, Todd, with, with Rod DC, was that a lot of people were willing to stop to or from on their way to or from New York, for example, and play for us on a Monday night. That's right. We were very... It was a win-win, win-win situation, you might say. Yeah, we were very fortunate to get performers who normally would not have stopped in the Frederick area. They might have booked themselves somewhere in the D.C. or the Baltimore area, but they would never have stopped in Frederick. So you're absolutely right. We were very so how fortunate. could I quit going? I mean, um, you know, Brewer's Alley's uh, about 100 miles, a little over 100 miles round trip. Uh, and um, I estimated that we did about 450 shows 
trying to figure it out accurately. And um, I didn't miss that many of them. During that time, we had shows every Monday, and I did 50 shows at Jam and Java 2009, 10, and 11 on Monday. So I missed those shows in Frederick, but uh, I was putting like 22,000 miles a year on my car uh, back then. And uh, I, I was addicted because I had to keep going to see who you and and Rod and I were putting on stage. And we really helped build a great community. And of course, it was always unbelievable that people didn't know what we were doing every Monday. There were a lot of people <laughs> in Frederick who had no idea, but we were so lucky to have that space. Uh, and also on a, an unrelated thing, except for the fact that it's Frederick, you know, I mentioned that I'm on a whole bunch of CDs. And one that, uh, that I recorded in Frederick that I really love was David Mott's album yes. mm-hmm. it's called Riverside. And, and that was so much fun. Uh, every song I thought, well, he could be the next Chris Christopherson or John Prine. Mm-hmm. I just, just really love it. It's very, very folksy. And uh, uh, it's just a, a standout CD. So I don't know if uh, he's aware I like it that much, but, but it's called Riverside. Well, hopefully David he will Mott. listen to the uh, podcast and realize how much you enjoyed his music. So that'll be fun. Well, it was great. It was great. Now, you you are, I'm assuming, still are and have been for many years on the board of SAW, or Songwriters Association of Washington. But you were also instrumental in the very early uh, formative years of fame, Frederick Acoustic Music Enterprise. And yes, they, they, I, I was making trips up there once a month to Frederick Coffee, mm-hmm. and uh, to uh, and, and you know one of one of my thrusts was to kind of have a exchange program. I wanted to make uh, Northern Virginia musicians aware of Frederick, Maryland, and and vice versa. So there were some nights, I believe, at Bangkok Blues, where I featured a bunch of musicians from Frederick, and uh, uh, right there in Falls Church. So. Uh, I, I just I call it you know cross pollination, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, and I also, uh, as you know, loved what uh, the rise up singing uh, thing that Tommy Wright does with Fame. Mm-hmm. I gave him the idea of getting a class set of books. You know, when I was teaching English, let's say we had enough money to get thirty grammar books, and you would use them during the class time. You would lock them up at the end of the class time and make sure all 30 were there. And then you let the kids go. So that way you didn't lose any books. So I uh, urged uh, Fame to get a class set of Rise Up singing books so everybody could be on the same page. And then, you know, what happened is people started uh, developing an interest in it. So they got their own copies and there are many different editions. I'm looking at one here right now, but that the rise up singing is, is like, I call it the folk Bible. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so important. And, uh, so I also wanted, uh, Rod to include, uh, uh, sort of a rise up singing part of our shows in, at Brewer's Alley, but we were so, uh, geared toward, uh, original material most of the time that, uh, you know, that's one thing that made our shows a success. We kept experimenting, tinkering with, we ended up with uh, the piano prelude for half an hour, a couple of three song acts and the feature and, uh, and then ending with Rod. <coughs> Excuse me, but that was so much fun. 
No, it, a lot of fun, and the people who were who I call the steady eddies, and they ebbed and flowed over time because their lives changed, they moved away, whatever. But we had, we we always had a core group who would show up early, and it was anywhere from six to to ten people. They would always come in early, make sure they got their favorite seat, make sure they ordered dinner before the rest of the folks all showed up at the same time and drove the the waiter bartender nuts trying to uh, you know take everyone's order and get the food up quickly before the, the the main act but it was such a fun and unique in a way um type of performance because it was mostly originals and the fact that you got the three song what we used to call or i called the cameo appearances Mm -hmm. which was generally someone who maybe didn't have enough material for a featured set or they were just getting started and we wanted to promote them and introduce them to people. And then, of course, we we had the featured artist and and many who came through maybe in the beginnings of their careers and we were able to kind of watch them get better and then some who were actually in the twilight of their careers. Yeah, yeah, thanks to um, you and Rod and... You know, I enjoyed rounding up people, and um, two songs wasn't enough for many of them. But I think when you told them they could do three songs, they would drive for hundreds of miles, <laughs> <laughs> really. And, and it was a listening room, and uh, you know, I'm part of the Reston Herndon Folk Club. I'm on the board of that, and uh, that's a listening. You don't talk during the songs, and and we know at Brewers Alley, Rod would say, "What were you brought up in a barn?" Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know that that created a a very enjoyable um, environment. You know, some musicians are, are in shock and kind of intimidated. But wow, everybody's really listening to me. Oh my goodness! I've had many performers who who performed at Brewers Alley for the first time say, "Gosh, I felt uncomfortable," because they would perform in bars and restaurant lounges and wineries where people didn't really pay attention. Well, we had our own little—I call it the cutest little bar nook in the world mm-hmm. up there—a little bar. We had our own bartender and our own waiters and waitresses. And, you know, those people had to go up and down the stairs of the elevator uh, for everything. And um, they they became part of our extended family. I mean, they really were supportive of the music. They appreciated what we were doing, even though maybe they didn't make as much money because they didn't have as much turnover. And a lot of our audience members weren't generous tippers, I know. But uh, I, I'm still grateful to those people who uh, helped us uh, with the uh, bartending to make that uh, just an enjoyable little uh, um, experience of kind of a little brigadoon. Like like on Tuesday, on Monday nights, we're going to create this this environment, this nightclub, this speakeasy, and uh, it it was uh, it was great. I'm glad I did it. It wasn't practical, you know. I've been married several times now. But I, I'm, I'm between wives right now. I haven't been married for a few years. And so I don't have to be practical. I don't have to go home and say, <laughs> you know, say, hey, honey, I drove uh, 75 miles tonight and I spent money uh, and I played music. Uh, you know, so um, I do, like I say, I don't have to deal with uh, somebody saying, well, you know, that doesn't sound practical uh, because it, it's very enriching. I tell people, Playing music is cheaper than golf. And I'll tell you one thing is uh, that I'm doing is, um, you know, uh, I mentioned I'm on a lot of CDs where I play drums and add harmonies. 
I'm taking a bunch of those songs and learning the guitar parts and singing them for the folk club on Tuesday nights. What so I've, I've done, I even did Rod DC's, uh, this ain't love, this ain't love. I'm just hanging around. Yep. I, I found an old video of that. And then I talked to him to make sure I got some of the words right. And I played that on a Tuesday night for the folk club. So I hadn't heard that. I figured, you know, a lot of times I'm not going to hear these songs unless I sing them myself. So, uh, I made a project to, uh, um, if you go to my Facebook page, you'll, you'll, uh, see, um, not, not just my regular Facebook page, but the one called Rongo music, then, uh, scroll down there and you get to see me doing all kinds of humiliating things on the washboard, like shoot them in the pants. Somebody's been using that thing. <laughs> well, now you have received many awards, um, whammy awards. Um, you, you, won the award for most supportive of Washington music at one point from uh, Whamma. And not only that, but you have attended or gone on the cruise. What is it? The, what's the name of that? Criamo. Criamo cruise. And you have yes. actually schmoozed with some heavy hitter performers. while on Oh, the cruise. sure. Oh, sure. Well, you know, they, uh, when you're, you're on a ship for a whole week, uh, they can't get away from me, you know? Uh, <laughs> So you meet people like Kev Moe, Brandy Carlisle, um, David Bromberg, uh, the Civil Wars, um, Amy Lou Harris. I've got to interview her uh, one year. And then last year, Tommy Emmanuel, for crying out loud, got to know Billy Bragg and his whole family. So it's just uh, it's just what happens when, you know, have ice cream with the Indigo Girls, uh, dinner with Lyle Lovett, lunch with... Uh, I mean, it's just it's just crazy, and it, it, it's like a big floating pajama party for a week. Imagine going to one great concert after another, all e afternoon and evening till late at night, and you don't have to get in your car and drive anywhere because it's like being on a big thirteen-story building that's floating and bobbing along. Now, do you have to pinch yourself sometimes, figuratively, oh. to to you know? Gosh. Oh, oh, oh my gosh! You know, like yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll find myself talking to. Um, Benjamin Taylor, you know, who's the uh, son of James Taylor, and we're watching a Second City comedy show, and and I'm making up jokes that are just as funny as what they were saying, and then Taylor is like, oh, he, he likes me, oh my gosh, you know, I, yeah, it's 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 kind of crazy. Or you run into Kev Moe in an elevator and talk to him about a Birchmere show and request a song, and Kev Moe says, you like that song? I wrote that song. Nobody likes, and then he'll do it. <laughs> he did it for me. That he went back to his cabin to relearn more than one way home. Wow! That, so that's just an example of the kind of thing. Or you, you see these people after a concert, and you know you have a thousand people stomping and screaming because it was so good. You know, soggy bottom boys or something from Oh Brother Where Art Thou, and and they're out in the hall wondering if they were any good. And so you give them a pat on the back. It's crazy. But no matter how famous they are, or successful they are, they still need strokes like that. And uh, but what we mentioned, Kayamo Cruz. What I really enjoyed is that uh, I had my midnight song circle, uh, usually in a room called the Summer Palace on the ship. Uh, a Summer Palace after Tsar Nicholas and Alexandra's uh, palace with lots of artwork. 
around the room and a beautiful white grand piano. So I insisted that if I'm going to put a show together for uh, musicians on the ship, then I needed a piano, a room with a piano. So they let me have the access to this snazzy restaurant. And my idea was this. I discovered, uh, I think in 2008, the first cruise, that there was no nothing for the talented passengers. So Jim Clark went to the cruise director and said, you know, turn the speakers off on the ceiling here in Bar City, and people can sit in these chairs and trade songs. Well, and then that became uh, popular for a year or two. And then Jim Clark once again said, you know, Ron, this is getting out of hand because a lot of people cut in and uh, instead of taking turns politely, and then the introverts get uh, get the short shrift. So then I started organizing song circles for talented musicians from around the world who were passengers. And what I would do is call on them in order. I'd write down your name when you come in, and we don't rush through your song. We talk a little about who you are and where you're from. And I, so you have a lot of people who were from all around the country or all around the world, and they were big fish in little ponds back home. But nobody on the ship knew they were any good at all until they played at my song circles. And then uh, I built a community on the ship year after year. But the real feather in my cap was when the cruise people, musicians, started playing in my song circle on the ship because they felt comfortable with me. I got Billy Bragg's son to participate. He was shy because he said, if people know I'm Billy Bragg's son, they're going to expect me to be really good like my dad. So I said, what's your mother's maiden name? And I had him sign up using her name uh, as, as a last name. And I found him a violinist. And then he performed. And audiences loved him. And he had fun. And I told the violinist later, I said, you know, you just played with Billy Bragg's son. <laughs> so that's been fun. And I've gotten to know these people on the ship year after year, because I've been on all 13 of the cruises, and the 14th one would be taking place now, but it's postponed a year, probably. And uh, I was very lucky when I got off the ship, we were healthy, because that's just when the pandemic was uh, yeah. getting started. It was pretty scary. So uh, I found I could use my teacher skills to organize a song circle and make sure that people don't uh, cut in line. And, you know, I love the stories behind the songs so much and the people who write them. So that, to me, it's not all about the music. It's about, you know, who you are and where you're from and, you know, as you're asking me stuff now. But uh, to me, that's uh, fascinating to uh, to learn things about the, uh, you know, a, a lot of people come in and just hear a song and, and they, they have no idea what goes into it. So with your background in education and the use of English and your musical background and knowing all these people and loving the fact the, that they can talk about the backstory of their songs, have you ever considered writing a book? Um, you know, I probably should. I've written plenty of uh, stories, many stories. My stories are short stories about small town life. I'm from Front Royal, so it's sort of like a Weinberg Ohio thing with lots of chapters, but um, yeah, um, I do think that's a that's a good idea you've given me. I could I could put something uh, together, and I am part of a writers group, and sometimes I I write uh, 
uh, nonfiction. You know, I'll write about real things that happen, and um, uh, I, I enjoy that. And uh, it means a lot to me when, let's say, if I'm reading a story or a poem to somebody and it, and it really moves them. And I try. Uh, um, I told my creative writing students, you know, a lot of the right words, just put them in the right order. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do think, uh, you know, each of us has a, uh, what I, what authors often call a cockeyed view of the world, you know, because your perspective is unique. How about you? Uh, you've had such a multifarious life. Have you thought about writing a book? I'd get sidetracked too easily. Mm-hmm. And the, um, uh... I'm not sure. It's like I love art, and I was a, a, I was a, I can't say I was a good artist when I was younger, but I enjoyed it. And I was thinking the other day of, you know, gosh, that'd be a fun thing to do. I haven't painted in a long time. I really haven't done anything serious with my art in many <laughs> drawing type of uh, artwork. And I thought, you know what, Todd, you're too scatterbrained to do that. You won't. You'd start something and never finish it. So I just decided to put that on the shelf and live on my laurels from when I was in high school, you know, <laughs> but I have a wow. question. I have a question for you with all of your association, which is vast musically. What is your favorite song of all time? Wow. Well, probably be, uh, something like let it be, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I really, um, uh, ad- love what Paul McCartney has created. And um, I did that song uh, at a, a, a friend's, a teaching colleague's uh, a memorial service one time with my band Night Music. And and that, that means a lot to me. Uh, so I just think uh, our lives are so much richer now because of uh, Paul McCartney and his friends. And uh, I did get to see him in concert a few years ago and the Verizon Center at the time in D.C. And part of the show, he closed the main curtain and just had a little trio, and they did a set of Quarrymen songs. Oh, wow. So, you know, uh, and Billy Bragg wrote a book about how skiffle music changed the world. Mm-hmm. Songs like Does Your Chewing Gum Lose Its Flavor? Yeah. Yeah, because you had a whole generation of kids after World War II who were able to get their hands on cheap instruments or make instruments and play music that their parents didn't like, but their grandparents did like. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, and then that led people like Lennon and McCartney. And I read the other day how Lennon and McCartney were, were kids one day when they, they said, well, let's go across town. There's this guy over there who knows how to play a B7th. Mm-hmm. And he's going to teach us how to play a B7th. And <laughs> can you imagine? I mean, it was not easy to get you know, guitar lessons, music lessons, you couldn't go to YouTube. And even in Front Royal, if you wanted to get guitar lessons, you had to go to Buzzy Corbin's place, and he was kind of scary, or drive 20 miles to get to Winchester. But, you know, I want to mention that we used uh, Brewer's Alley as a place where our piano players, for example, would uh, aim for improving. And we we had about a dozen we rotated. And I want to mention, too, Anna Keller, because I discovered her in 2011, and uh, her son's piano teacher introduced uh, me to her, and and she started playing at at Brewer's Alley and working and improving, and she wrote a great song in honor of your wedding. That's right, she did. The wedding song, and and, 
I just think it's a beautiful song. And, uh, and I finally convinced her that she should play it at, uh, not just when people get married, but it'd be nice to hear. Oh my gosh. Uh, yes. Yeah. In, in her performances. Right. I also feel indebted to uh, Peter, Paul and Mary, because I love the harmonies and I learned harmonies from the, the Everly brothers too. I always wanted to be the third Everly brother, but a few years ago at the Northeast regional folk Alliance with Saul, uh, I got to meet Noel Stookie, Paul. Oh, did you? And I couldn't believe it. I thought I was going to wet my pants because he was just so friendly. And the next morning he said, Oh, Ron, let's have coffee. And, I thought, I can't believe it. Pinch myself, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm talking to him about a song he wrote for an album called Christmas. Uh, it was Peter, Paul, and Mommy, Christmas Dinner. Yeah. So I've learned to play that on guitar. Yep. And uh, I sing, I sing yeah. that every Christmas. Yep. It's oh, I love it. It's a wonderful I, song. I'd love to hear you do it. And uh, so I talked to him about Christmas Dinner and, and uh, about how important... Uh, is the harmony singing was to me when I first bought a bunch of albums from Columbia records. I think you got 10 albums for a dime. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> and then paid for it over the next 12 to 20 right. months. <laughs> I remember looking at an album to see more. I wanted to see, well, you got the name of the song and how long it is. What's this in parentheses, Tom Paxton. Mm -hmm. Oh, he wrote the song. So that's when I first discovered uh, a, a closer, taking a closer look. Now Tom Paxton is a friend of mine, and he's part of the Reston Herndon Folk Club. He lives in Alexandria, and I've run into him in Glen Echo repeatedly. And uh, it's just amazing that uh, what I think uh, has happened, uh, not just to me, but in all our lives, if you pay attention and, and go to the right place at the right time and speak up a little bit, uh, then and you can have some great adventures. Well, you've had a very rich life in music for sure, and still do. I shouldn't say you have had, because it's still oh. going on with the exception of the coronavirus and things being kind of squashed, or as I put it, um, yeah. live music is on hiatus. The Hopefully sometime in this new year of 2021, we will be able to get back to more than just outdoor music and get some of those indoor venues back open. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed that that'll happen because one, I miss being introduced to new live performers here in the Frederick area and elsewhere and being able to go to concerts where it's, at, whether it's at the Birchmere or wherever, and then to see you. So, well, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been uh, rough, but we've had to make the best of it. And, um, as I say, I've turned my attention toward more uh, guitar. And also, uh, I loved putting shows on, most recently, at Cafe Montmartre, or Lake Ann Reston. Uh, but all that is on hold now. And uh, I'm going to wait till Dr. Fauci says it's okay. Well, and, uh, I look forward to hearing you live play the guitar and sing. I'm going to check out the uh, the you know, the videos of you playing, but nothing. Videos are wonderful. And I get to see some concerts from when I was a kid right. or younger that I never was able to go to on video. But since I know you and you're a contemporary of mine, I look forward to seeing you in person. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. I'm, I feel badly cutting the show off because I could talk to you for another three hours. <laughs> but I have to keep it within the confines of what I'm allowed to upload on the on the site. So thank you so much, Ron, for for joining me today, but also for all you have done not only here in the Frederick area, but in the greater Washington, D.C. area for music. And then also 
nationally, internationally with your, on the cruises and things, because I'm sure you've helped a lot of other people, like you've helped people in the greater D.C. and Frederick area. Well, I love to, um, uh, to get to know musicians, and a lot of the traveling troubadours who play for us at Brewer's Alley will camp out here at the humble goat abode in Centerville, Virginia. So if you go to restinhernandfolkclub.com and to the calendar and click on some Tuesdays, you can hear me play guitar and sing. Uh, like I say, an original song last night and uh, uh, others too. So well, it's been great. Well, the folks, once you and I finish our conversation, are going to hear a song by Ian Campbell Smith, and it's called Texas. And explain a little bit how you got involved with his music and how you got on his CD. Well, many years ago, I was producing shows at Red Rocks Cafe and Tequila Bar in Centerville. I think it was around 2006. And uh, Scott Moore from Focus Music said there's a guy from Australia who's really famous there named uh, Ian Campbell Smith. Uh, can you put him on stage at Red Rocks? I said, are you kidding? He's really going to show up here? And and he did, and he played a song called Blue Guitar, and it was incredible. And uh, I, I, I've learned to play the song, and I've played it for the folk club. But I had to learn uh, all the – he stayed here for a few years. So I had to learn all these Australian drum beats and these songs. And then he recorded some uh, CDs here in the States. He wrote a whole bunch of songs. Then his wife got a great job back in Australia, so he moved away. And I convinced him uh, there at Brewer's Alley, I said, why don't you put together a CD with all of your American adventure songs? He thought he was going to come here and you know really take the country by storm, and he found out he is – the best, but it's so competitive. So uh, I got to play some, uh, do some playing and recording with Ian. And the song Texas is is really amusing. And uh, it's on a CD called Texas. And it's also on ballads and bar songs. And Jean Bayou was just trying to call me. She's on the song Texas too. I think she plays piano. Uh, we had people like Zoe Mulford, Mark Sylvester. So uh, I got to play at the Australian Embassy with Ian and uh, some really cool gigs. Uh, and uh, I hope he comes back to the United States again. I'm sure he will. But uh, then uh, when he moved back to Australia, his drummers there had to learn my drum beats. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little bit of Ron Goad in Australia. That's cool. That's right, down under. But Texas is so amusing. Oh, and Brian Gunderstorff is on a Mary Sue Tui. Sure. Yeah. And, and uh, as I say, uh, uh, Gene Bayou as well. Well, Ron, thanks again for joining me, and I look forward to seeing you sometime in the near future. And uh, I wish you all the best always. Well, thank, thank you so much. I enjoyed talking to you, and uh, I'll uh, hit mute and listen. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thanks again, Ron. Thank you. Well, that was Ron Goad, and I consider him a very, very good friend, and I'm so glad that he has joined me on stage many, many times and uh, been supportive of my music as he's been supportive of other folks. And we're going to listen to him now playing percussion drums and doing some background vocals on Ian Campbell Smith's song, Texas. I was in Oklahoma City at the setting of the sun in a bar full of self-pity. I had nothing going on, 
I started to write this song about Texas I could not believe it's true There was a woman there beside me Writing a song about Texas too She sang do it for the money And it just won't work Do it for me honey And you won't get hurt Let's go make a living Singing lullabies Underneath the Texas skies She said, let's hit the road together, said I thought that sounded nice You know I'm the kind of fellow likes to make the same mistakes twice So we gassed up my old pickup and we set out heading south With a buckwheat cake upon her knee and a banjo in my mouth Singing, do it for the money and it just won't work Do it for me, honey, and you won't get hurt Let's go make a living singing lullabies In a hotel room in Dallas, I could not believe my eyes Lord, she had a map of Texas tattooed in between her thighs With El Paso and Texarkana on each corner of the map When I got to Corpus Christi, well, there was no turning back Singing, do it for the money, and it just won't work Do it for me, honey, and you won't get hurt Let's go make a living, singing lullabies That November and December we did 47 shows From the Oklahoma border to the Gulf of Mexico We sold half a million records, made seven million bucks In a state as big as Texas, you just never know your luck Singing, do it for the money and it just won't work Do it for me honey and you won't get hurt Let's go make a living singing The Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link, wispymopmusic.podbean.com, and podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N, or you can find the show on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Got herself a lawyer and he got her all at wealth. Now I'm back in Oklahoma feeling sorry for myself. Got me wondering and thinking how a good thing can go wrong. Guess there's nothing left to do but to finish off the song. Singing, do it for the money and it just won't work. Do it for me, honey, and you won't get hurt. Let's go make a living singing lullabies underneath the tent. Texas skies Underneath